Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends, just trying to make some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. After a not-so-hot day where the Dow lost 118 points, S&P dropped 0.24%, NASDAQ, more muted, declined 0.14%. We need to talk about how stocks bottom, how they stop dripping down, dripping, 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 so they can start going up again. We have to talk about it now because people are getting fed up with this market, with its endless head fakes and killer rotations. Oh, we aren't at the bottom. Still, too many believers that each day will be the big day out of the morass. That was easy. Truth is, there's more than one way to market. create a bottom here. I mean, sometimes the selling simply exhausts itself. Sometimes we get hit with a supposedly cataclysmic event, but the reality turns out to be not that bad. Think about actually what happened to the pandemic. Then there's the third kind of bottom. It's the one I want to talk about tonight. It's the kind I'm expecting in the not-too-distant future. I'm talking about the confounding ennui bottom. See, the market's full of nervousness right now because there's so much chatter about hard-to-grasp worries. The supply chain, as, as if we really know what that means. Higher prices that haven't really hurt us yet. COVID-induced absenteeism at work, how much, how little. And our general inability to beat the pandemic. All day you hear about supply chain disruption. Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan, just said it might be over next year. But we don't even know what it is. Why haven't I received my new shower door that I bought in February? Where's the darn furniture we ordered? How come the faucets aren't here? If I could get a straight answer from anyone, it would always sound exactly the same. Well, the ports are jammed up. We can't find enough truckers, and there's an overwhelming number of orders to fill. All right, already. We all know it. But you know what? That's actually not the real reason. Most executives make plans out a year ahead of time. So many companies came in with their 2021 game plan near the height of the pandemic last fall. They were completely caught with their pants down when the economy reopened. Meanwhile, anyone who tried to pivot and flood the zone with more supply to take advantage of it has gotten crushed. Hey, listen, Southwest Air sought to take advantage of a sudden upturn in travel, but they got hit with tons of unintended consequences because the capacity is not where it can take advantage of the increases. I spoke with uh, Gary Kelly this morning about Southwest, and it just seemed like a lot of things went wrong when they tried to take advantage of the higher prices. Now, there are some truly ridiculous parts of the economy that are laying us to waste. Let's talk about this trucker shortage for a second, please. You know you can fix the trucker shortage. 
you got to pay truckers more money. Ah, oh, businesses hate doing this. Cuts into their earnings per share. But I speak from personal experience. At our restaurants, we're paying more for everything. Workers, food, insurance, you name it. The alternative, though, not being in business. You can always close. Not a great alternative. In other words, a big part of the supply chain crisis is really, and executives don't want to pay more for labor crisis. Now, that's not a way out of the crisis. If you can spend more on guaranteed delivery, well, that's the win. But you know who's thought of that? Only Amazon. There's plenty more mystification going on. We're now hearing about a new wave of businesses that have tried and failed to get people back to the office, right? They won't go. These work-from-home diehards are driving tremendous demand for housing and autos. But houses and cars are sold out all over the place because of this. The auto companies can't boost production because there's a semiconductor shortage. Remember, they didn't order a lot of semis last year. They didn't think they'd sell a lot of cars this year. Cars these days are very high-tech, not versus data centers, but versus what they used to be when they were mechanical. The housing developers want to hold back on new construction until the cost of materials comes down. Who can blame them? They don't want to be the reason for their own inflation surge. In the meantime, the price of things at the supermarket just jumped. Lots of people think that those prices never come down. But that's only true if you buy nationally branded stuff rather than cheap knockoff private label brands like my favorite, which is Kirkland, the house brand at Costco. I had a gorgeous Kirkland shirt on this weekend. People thought I got it. They thought it was a Zania. It was a Kirkland. Kirkland is as good as the real thing. That's one reason why we own Costco for the Chapel Trust, which you can follow along by joining the CNBC Investing Club. It's that little thing. It's hard to look when you're on TV. Like, remember, I was in, like, high school, and they had that, like, stage left, stage right. I never understood any of that. That's probably why I never got the lead. That and because Mrs. Duesberg didn't like me. That's far afield. All right, put it all together, and we've got a bunch of semi-ethereal boogeymen who, that we just can't, and we can't rein them in. And actually, to tell you, they're beyond our ken. We can't even figure them out because we are not supply chain maestros. Now, these are new kinds of negatives that we don't have much experience with, which is why so many money managers are unsure of what to buy or sell here. Hence the endless choppiness in the stock market that makes people want to give up. I think this flop chop scenario has to play out for a couple more weeks before people have just had it and say, I want nothing to do with the stock market. What do I mean by flop chop? I'll give you some examples. Today, we had some gigantic runs for no reason whatsoever in the cloud software stocks. Salesforce, Adobe, Workday, and ServiceNow. These are some of my favorite companies, but today's action is incredibly frustrating because for the last 10 days, we've been told that these high growth names are precisely what does the worst in this environment. The worst! These are supposed to be sold and shorted. The experts almost universally told us not to touch these. They were unbelievably good. But today, they defy conventional wisdom. Does that mean maybe inflation scare is merely a scare? Does it mean something's good about to happen? Does it simply reflect the market's total confusion? Just a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing? I'm going with Macbeth. Honestly, we don't know. But the flop-chop nature of this market makes you feel like there's no way to win because you can't nail down the trajectory of anything. I've been there, people. I've had so many markets like this. I always try to tell them they do end, they do end, but people don't. They don't listen. They just leave. These are tires. They're tiresome groups all over the place. Hey, we did a primer for investment club members in the semiconductor space today. Why? Because I want you to understand that they're not all created equal. For example, Micron's a commodity chip maker. It reported a good quarter, but said the next one will be light. So the stock broke down. It's now getting kicked to the curb. 
Same goes for Texas Instruments, which dropped nearly five bucks today. On talk that they can't make all the chips that they need. Well, some people say weaker demand. I'm going with the chips they can't they can't make all the chips. Best of breed semis like AMD, NVIDIA, Marvell Tech, they're in great shape. They got all the chips they need because they cost a lot of money. Their only problem is that they can't meet surging demand. That makes the semiconductor stocks very frustrating for most people. They're either terrible or terrific, depending on the one you pick. Or how about this? Right up the alley of the problem. Bloomberg's reporting that Apple has to slash its phone production, its iPhone production, because it goals, the goals, okay? Because it can't get enough chips from Broadcom and Texas Instruments. Now, there's some real semantic issues at stake here. They aren't slashing production. They're slashing their goals because they can't meet demand. Oh, wow, are these two different things. We figure this will force Apple to cut its forecast, and that always causes stock to go down. Always, okay? But is cutting your forecast because there's a component shortage the same as cutting your forecast because of a loss of demand? I bet Apple's prospective customers will just wait a little longer rather than switching to a competitor. There really isn't a competitor for the people who own Apple already. The machine, they love Apple. But the stock still got hit when the story came out, and I bet that won't be the last time it gets down on the same piece of news. What are we doing for the child trust? We're not selling. Why? Because trading in and out of Apple has been a time-honored way to lose money. Always a mistake. Classic dilemma of the moment. Should I stay? Should I go? If you're never enough, go! But as I always tell members of the club, it is almost impossible to tell when to get back in. And that's where the big money's made. And that's really my point. There's nowhere to turn right now. Every day someone tries to make sense of the broader strokes, the big moves, the stagflation calls, the Fed has to move calls. They, they, they try to. It's almost impossible. I mean, how can Alphabet drop 49 points when it was pushed so hard by a major progress today? Why did the retailers rally if the economy is supposed to be weakening? These are random, themeless moves, people, that make you feel like a dope the moment you get involved. So what do you do? You wait. You wait until we get closer to the end of the month, when historically the market tends to bottom. You, then you get ready to buy stocks gradually on the way down. Bottom line, it is tough to tell people to relax. That doesn't work, R-E-L-A-X. I mean, you know, you, you can't even do that if you're Aaron Rodgers. You just need to know that you're not alone. In fact, judging by the ugly hedge fund numbers that I've seen recently, anyone having trouble with this market is actually in the majority. So don't feel bad if the market makes you feel baffled. It's incredibly confusing out there right now. It is every time we only get to what I call the ennui bottom. Mike in Minnesota. Mike. Hey, Booyah, and thanks for all you do, Jim. Oh, man, I'm sure trying to be helpful. Thank you, Mike. What's up? You are very much so. I'm calling regarding John Deere. I got into it in the spring. It was around 330. Watched it run like crazy to about 380-something, and then started to get out. I'm all the way out now, but I've been watching the headwinds and the good news and the bad news. It's kind of mixed. The steel prices are up, supply chain issues, chip issues, but at the same time, demand's high. And all the stuff in the field is getting old, so I know that you know they're going to do well. Yeah. So then JP, JP Morgan came out at two ninety seven, and then they got the strike coming up. Mike, uh, it's a like, strike. I mean, I yeah. was thinking about Agco. I was thinking about calling Scott Wyant, CNH. The deer strike is going to hurt. They've got to come to the table. They got to make a deal. This is that thing I keep talking about. That labor is trying to finally cash in, and capital doesn't want it to happen. I think Deere is making a lot of money for everybody. But right now, if Deere takes that strike, the business is going to go to Agco. All right. There's more than one way for the market to bottom. But this one's a torturous way. The kind of bottom I'm expecting in the not-too-distant future is confounding. It's a confounding ennui bottom. Ennui like, uh, 
I can't take it anymore. Right? So don't feel bad if you feel baffled. It's incredibly confusing out there. Well, man, buddy, tonight, CrowdStrike bounced today after announcing an extension to its security offerings, allowing users to respond to and fix sophisticated attacks faster, including ones where they want crypto. I'm learning more about the technology from the CEO. Man, now that oil is broken out above 80, I'm going off the charts with the commodities expert to see where it's headed, and you do not want to miss that. And tomorrow, Medtronic is holding its inaugural ESG investor briefing. I'm going to get a preview of the new goals from the company's top brass. So you've got to stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Canva presents Unexplained Appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visible visibility at indeed.com slash mad money. Just go to indeed.com slash mad money right now and support this show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mad money. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. What do you do when the stock of a terrific growth company cools and then slips back from its all-time high? Maybe an interesting level, maybe not. Consider the case of CrowdStrike, the cloud-based cybersecurity software play that we've liked for so long. This is a powerful long-term theme that CrowdStrike rides, and they delivered a fabulous beat and raise quarter in August. Since then, though, the stock's pulled back 36 unexplained points from its highs. The market turned against fast-growing tech names in response to rising interest rates and a fear of inflation. At these levels, CrowdStrike feels darn right enticing. Plus, the company just kicked off its Falcon 2021, that's F-A-L dot C-O-N-T, event, C-O-N, uh, where they, they bring together customers to discuss the most significant cyber threats and the new tools they've come up with to fight them. So let's take a closer look with George Kurtz. He's the co-founder, president, and CEO of CrowdStrike to learn more about today's announcements and what they mean going forward. Mr. Kurtz, welcome back to Mad Money. Jim, always a pleasure to be here. Well, look, you're, you are uh, a breath of fresh air when it comes to what I regard as being endless endless targets that we've become, whether it be the Russians or whether it be the, the Chinese, North, North Koreans, doesn't matter. But what I want to know is what does extended detection and response do as a replacement for endpoint detection and response? 
Well, it's it's really the evolution of uh, this level of threat detection. And the key with XDR versus EDR, and there are a lot of acronyms, is that you have to start with the best EDR on the market, which is what CrowdStrike has. And then we extend that to pull in other technologies information. It could be uh, a Zscaler, it could be Okta, it could be a Proofpoint and others um, that supply information that will allow us to extend our detection capabilities and our tremendous AI across other data sets above and beyond just what we're seeing on the endpoints collected by the CrowdStrike Falcon agent. Well, what I'm worried about is uh, you often are, are a truth teller of the industry, which is why I love having you on. You're concerned about stale platforms as XDR to hide their weakness. Now, to me, stale platform means some of the big breaches we've seen. Companies that didn't didn't add more money, companies that felt they could get away with it, and they became targets. Who is, what is a stale platform that we should be looking for and be perhaps concerned about? When we talk about stale platforms, we're really talking about uh, legacy-type tools that are basically stringing together uh, disparate technologies into a so-called data lake and trying to call that XDR. That really isn't XDR. You have to start with the best EDR. You've got to layer on advanced analytics and AI, and you have to have it seamlessly work on identification of advanced threats. And then also the R is, is the response. And we're really excited because we were able to announce uh, our Falcon Fusion, which is our automated workflow, our SOAR capabilities, uh, SOAR meaning uh, security orchestration, to allow uh, users to actually automate the identification and remediation of these identified threats. Now, you make a very big point of including Google, okay, the Google Cloud. Now, we have been big fans of what's going on in Google Cloud. We think they're making major strides. I don't see with the other guys. I mean, should I be concerned that they don't have the, the Google's work safer, maybe uh, better than what the other guys have? Well, I think all the cloud providers are, are working on these sort of uh, opportunities. But in particular, uh, we're excited uh, on the announcement with Google today um, when we think about um, the ability to actually partner with them and, and help provide an alternative to, uh, to say, Microsoft. Um, that gets us really excited and it gets our customers really excited. All right, now, we've got uh, talks coming up probably with China, maybe at the end of the year. And I'm proposing that there can be no talks until they say we make uh, them have a commitment to stop doing what they're doing in terms of cyber terrorism. What would it take if they did not put an end to it? How can we stop it? Well, it really comes down to being able to protect yourselves. And that's what companies need to do. Uh, the government is making advancements for sure, but at the end of the day, it's each company's responsibility, big or small. Think about that. From the largest companies to the smallest, uh, tiny little SMBs, they have to protect themselves, and they need technologies like CrowdStrike. And we think XDR is really a, a, a revolutionary approach to being able to look at these threats with higher fidelity and the ability to continue to stop breaches, which has been our mantra since I started the company. Well, you absolutely can do it. Now, what I think the government has to do, let's say I, uh, de- if I deposit uh, or withdraw $10,000 from, from a bank. Well, you know, the bank knows it. Uh, the bank has to, to notify for more than $10,000. Uh, why can't we combine CrowdStrike technology with who is taking in $10,000 or $10 million or spending $10 million worth of ransomware and be able to make cases. Right now, ransomware is undocumented. But if we knew from CrowdStrike who it was, who was getting struck, 
maybe because you know, or from your coalition. And we had these rules to be able to make it so that ransomware is the same as ten thousand one dollars from what we decided to do to stop money laundering. Wouldn't we put an end to this nonsense? Well, there is some movement uh, to extend Know Your Customer to uh, crypto. And uh, obviously, there's a lot of debate about that in the policy world. We'll, we'll let them work through it. Um, but it, as you mentioned, ransomware is a huge challenge. And on average, um, each ransom is about $6 million. I mean, put that in perspective, that's an average. So we've seen some ransoms being paid much more than that, obviously some less than that. But it's a tremendous problem right now. And it's not just the payment of it. It's really the fact that uh, you've got two problems. One is having all your data encrypted. And if you have to pay, uh, people are paying. But the other piece is if you decide to restore from your backups, they actually steal a copy of the data before they encrypt the files. And if you don't pay them, they'll actually leak the data uh, to a dedicated leak site. So you have two terrible choices. Get your data back after it's encrypted or uh, pay to have your data not be leaked on the Internet. Um, but, it's really a problem right now. But George, who would be willing to pay $6 million to, for ransomware when they could probably work out a deal with CrowdStrike to bring them in for some price, co- uh, pay over time, and make, make you know, look, nothing's 100% sure, but make it so that they have a legitimate ability to stop this. I mean, I don't understand the, the cost. I don't understand the cost benefit of, of being willing to pay six, six million dollars crookedly rather than pay it to CrowdStrike and do it so that you don't own ransomware. You don't have to pay ransomware. Well, you're absolutely right. It's it's like the burglar alarm that people buy after they get uh, burglarized. Right. It's much better to work with a company like CrowdStrike up front. Uh, we offer a million dollar breach warranty on uh, on our complete service. And we also, and this is a real big problem in the industry, Jim, may not uh, be aware of this. It is so hard to get cyber insurance right now because of ransomware. And our customers are getting discounts because we're working with the insurance providers. And they know that when we're on the job and on those systems, there's going to be a much lower likelihood of an issue. Oh, man, I didn't even know that. That was great information. I'm going with with an insurance company CEO tonight to see if this is available. We all may need this. I'm not kidding. I both personally and professionally. You know, I've got every time I have you on, George, I learn a great deal. I want to thank George Kurtz. George is the CrowdStrike co-founder, president and CEO. Really interesting stuff that came out today on brand new, a brand new, uh, let's just say devices, software, whatever you want to stop what I think is the biggest curse right now to business in this country. Bad money's back after the break. Coming up, is oil all toil and trouble? Or should energy be more than just a crude addition to your portfolio? Kramer refines his perspective. Next. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. It's the thought that is on everybody's mind. Can the price of oil keep roaring now that it's broken out above $80 a barrel? Historically high prices, well, they've always been the oil industry's downfall. After crude reaches a certain level, the big producers start drilling like crazy, which floods the market with supply and pushes prices right back down. And that's what happened in 2014 and then to a lesser extent in 2018. But I keep telling you the oil industry has changed. The big publicly traded producers have finally learned something called discipline. They figured out that recklessly boosting production is bad for business. Plus, there's all sorts of social and political pressures to go green, not to mention restrictions on drilling. And it doesn't hurt that a bunch of small, smaller shale producers, well, they got wiped out when oil crashed just last year. Does that mean that history won't repeat itself? Not so fast. Tonight, we're going off the charts with the help of Carly Garner. Now, she is a brilliant technician. She's also the co-founder of DeCarly Trading, the author of Higher Probability Commodity Trading, and a resident commodities uh, expert in order to get a better sense of the oil market. And let me just tell you something about Carly. You know, just a couple weeks ago, when everyone thought that NatGas was going to go to $8, she called the top on it, and it was dead right. And it's also the top in Europe, by the way. Okay, so, well, because the major producers have gotten religion on reckless drilling, Garner's not worried about them. She's worried about the smaller operators. See, if the big boys won't drill, that doesn't mean no one will drill. See, Garner points out that smaller private exploration and production firms, bodies are owned by private equity, are now able to access the financing they need in order to ramp up their output in the oil-rich regions of West Texas and now, by the way, southeast New Mexico. Some analysts think these small operators could make up half of U.S. production growth next year. When oil is at $80 a barrel, you can't stop new supply from coming online. We're also hearing rumors that ConocoPhillips is looking to go heavy in the, in the Permian Basin. Remember, they bought the Royal Dutch properties. And if Conoco breaks discipline, then, well, others are definitely going to follow. Conoco got downgraded the other day by Goldman. Now, that's why Garner always says the cure for high prices is high prices. Now, let's take a look at a series of charts that will be very indicative. First, this is a chart of what's known as the Baker Hughes rig count. Baker Hughes is the company that always generates these numbers. They come out on Fridays. Last week, we had 433 rigs that were running in the U.S. Now, that's a huge from a law of 172 in August of last year. That was just when that was Armageddon for the industry. Garner notes that the rig count has consistently marched higher since the beginning of the year. But it, see, it's not going up big. All right. But there's no reason that it should stop, uh, given the price of oil, that it shouldn't keep climbing. Uh, Of course, before the pandemic and the OPEC price war earlier last year, the recount was well above 600. But we're getting closer and closer to that level. Now, it's not fast enough for the the oil bears, all right, because you can extrapolate. This is, you know, going to be like March. But it's going in the right direction if you're a bear. I talked to many of the producers myself, okay? And I know that they have been holding back, and they were holding back, I think, correctly. They don't want to drill excessively. They, they just want to make money and return capital to their shareholders. Remember, that's Devin, that's Pioneer. I always mention those two. However, what the majors want may not matter. See, because when you drill down on where this rig count growth is coming from, take a look. 
This year, the bulk of it is coming from private operators. Now, private operators are in red. Again, these are usually private equity firms with all kinds of money. All right. And this first time has happened in uh, living memory. If the publicly traded players don't want to boost production, somebody else will do it instead. Take advantage of that $80 price. Even if the major players want to keep that oil on the ground so that they can boost prices, they don't have the heft to shut down the entire industry. On top of that, Garner sees another dynamic here, which is the publicly traded producers have nearly gotten burned up by drilling too aggressively. From 2014 through 2016, the whole industry just got eviscerated. And these guys aren't stupid. They learned their lesson. They don't want to lose fortunes the next time an oil boom goes bust. But the smaller privately held producers, many of them are newer companies, and Garner thinks they haven't learned the lesson. Remember, they got to pay off their debt service by drill, 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 which means they could flood the market with supply and send the price of oil into a tailspin, she believes. Now, remember, you got a million and a half barrels that have been taken out that they did every day in the Permian. I don't know how much these guys can put back in, but it can matter. Then there's the question of seasonality. I want you to look at this chart of oil seasonal performance over the last 30 years. Garner points out that oil tends to struggle to hold on to its gains beyond mid-October. Now, you tell me this isn't a defined top here? In fact, there's a strong tendency for crude to get hit with a wave of selling through the end of the year that starts right now. Of course, it's just a trend. Seasonality is not the holy grail. The market often flouts these uh, uh, historical norms. However, Garner thinks it's significant. Oil rallied hard and got overboard right before the time of the year when it usually peaks. So we've just had, remember, this is crude historical patterns. This is a 30-year pattern. And isn't it interesting that we just got this spike of 80 right here? Finally, I want you to take a gander at this weekly chart. Don't be uh, put off. It's very difficult. West, but we're going to make sense of it. West Texas crude going back nearly a decade. In the early teens, we got used to oil bouncing between 85 and 100. So you can just see 80. You know, here's 100. Here's 85. Just bounce, 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 bounce. Right, right. When oil tumbled to 77 in mid-2012, buyers immediately stepped in, pushed it right back up to triple digits. This is before the fracking revolution really got going. Remember, that's domestic oil production. Before all these shale plays transformed the industry, Garner points out that oil had a floor between 77 and 80. But in a post-fracking world, that floor became the new ceiling. In 2018, the bulls tried and failed to break through. Then we got hit with a huge sell-off that swiftly took oil down to 40. Three years later, we're once again trying to break a jump that same hurdle. This time, oil actually managed to break out above 80 for the first time in seven years. Still, Garner thinks it won't be easy. We've still got multiple technical barriers ahead, which not the least of which is the ceiling at 84 that I think probably has some real staying power. She also notes that there's a pivot line that begins in early October, and that's acted as a ceiling of resistance. Uh, this the pivot line currently stands at 84. Two, the downtrend line goes back to the peak in 2014. Now stands at 82. So unless we get some kind of major positive surprise here, Garner expects the oil rally to exhaust itself right here in the low 80s. If she's wrong and we do get that breakout, she says the next stop could be 90. But she thinks that it's very unlikely. And if we do see nine dollars a barrel, that'd be a screaming sell signal for her. What else? Zoom out like this. You can see. One, two, three. One, two, three. One, two, three. One, two, three. That's right. Oil has a habit of rallying three distinct waves. As we move from peak to peak, notice the relative strength index. That's a very important indicator. It tends to go lower while oil's headed higher. Well, here we go again. This is about to happen. Negative divergence. And it's often a sign that the trend is about to reverse itself. Garner points out that this happened in 2014, 2018, 2019 for major corrections. And now it seems to be happening all over again. You can also see the strength of the seasonal trend here. Oil really does tend to get hit in mid to late October, okay? Sometimes those breakdowns are jaw-dropping, like we saw in 2014 and 2018. If Garner's right that the oil market soon gets flooded with new supply, we're going to see a nasty decline. She says there's a floor of support at 72. 
and a floor support at 62. But if crude sinks to the 50s, then the next stop could be in the low 40s. Who's looking for that? Can you imagine what would happen to the stock market if oil broke down like that? You think we'd be talking so bearishly every day like I did at the top of the show? The bottom line, the charts as interpreted by Carly Garner suggest that this oil rally is living on borrowed time. Sooner or later, she thinks crude will roll over as privately held producers flood the market with supply. If you think that sounds absurdly bearish, remember that oil is incredibly volatile. If someone told you we'd have $80 in oil a year ago, well, they would have sounded insane. Yet here we are. Let's go to Bob in Pennsylvania, please. Bob. Hey, big boy, uh, Jim, from the City of Champions. All right. Hey. Uh, that's fair enough. Okay. <laughs> I, I wanted some of your wisdom uh, about when the infrastructure bill passes, uh, how you think the solar segment's going to do, and particularly uh, CSIQ, Canadian Solar. Yeah, I'm not. I mean, it had a nice little move today. I think it kind of got ahead of itself. I don't really want to be in this group. There's a lot of competition. It just worries me. I am not a solar backer right here. I've had periodically liked Enphase and I like Genrac. Uh, Enphase is probably my favorite, but it was up eight today. So I feel like, wow, we're already late to the party again. Okay, now, the charges interpreted by Carly Garner suggest that the rally in oil could be nearing its end. Now, wouldn't that be something? No one looking for that. Sooner or later, the charters predicts the crew will roll over as privately held producers flood the market with supply. Other than this great analysis, much more man money including my exclusive with Medtronic. After coming from its all-time high, are investors getting a tempting buying opportunity in this high-quality medical device maker? I'm going to talk to the CEO. And many U.S. executives say that, the, that infringement by the Chinese government is just a cost of doing business there. I'm revealing what I think needs to happen to get our relations with China on a more even playing field. And all your calls, rapid fire, tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. As we emerge from a seasonally weak period for the stock market, it's time to pick amongst the rubble. Take Medtronic, the big medical device company that's seen its stock fall nearly 10% from its September highs. To me, this is nuts. The last time Medtronic reported in late August, they shot the lights out. 19% organic growth. Management raised in the full-year earnings forecast. I was just kicking myself that the club didn't buy the darn thing for the trust. Plus, procedure volumes were finally back above pre-pandemic levels for most of the businesses, and they're gaining market share left and right. Now, this week, Medtronic's making a series of big announcements. They've got an ESG investor meeting tomorrow. You know how important I think that is. And they're unveiling a brand refresh, too. So before that hits, let's check in. For, they've got a great preview here with Jeff Marthys, the chairman and CEO of Medtronic, to get a better sense of where his company's headed. Mr. Martha, welcome back to Mad Money. Hey, thanks, Jim. Uh, thanks for having me. It's, a, it's an exciting time to be here with all the, uh, you know, I heard the intro, all the exciting things going on right now. We've got a New product, uh, new product approvals here. Our robot just got approved in Europe. We got the ESG event tomorrow, and as you mentioned, the new branding. So a lot going on. Well, but one thing I've got to tell you, I have always felt that there is a brand that is pristine and perfect. And if I ever have to use it, I've always asked, "Can I have it?" Unfortunately, I've had to ask. Which is Medtronic? Why does Medtronic need a refreshed brand? It's got the best brand in the world. Well, look, this is an opportunity, Jim. We're at the, it's an exciting time, like I mentioned. We're at the, the nexus of, you know, healthcare and technology at a, at a really important time. You know, we're coming out of the pandemic and healthcare is on everybody's mind and everybody's seeing the importance of technology in healthcare. 
And at the same time, there's all this innovation all around us here with you know, computing power, miniaturization, robotics, all these things that are applicable to what we do. And so we looked at it as an opportunity to, to kind of plant a flag uh, and to, for our employees and our broader stakeholders to say, look, we're going to step it up a notch, step up our, our pace of our innovation. And, um, you, know, uh, you know, so we thought it was a good opportunity. So it wasn't like we had to do it. Uh, but it, it's a it's an interesting time right now. All right. I agree with that. Now, there's something that you're going to do that I really like. One of your bullet points to help reduce global health disparities, investing 70 million in healthcare capacity training as part of it. One of my jobs is the uh, as this chief spokesperson for the American Migrant Foundation, try to do outreach, find people that we can help with the new medicines. I got to tell you, Jeff, we can't do it. We have looked and looked and looked. How are you going to be able to get into the areas that need Medtronic most when it's so hard to get in them? Well, look, we're, you know, we're definitely getting the right. Well, we're, we're doing a lot more virtual you know, training. I mean, one thing that came through the pandemic is the power of using these uh, different communication technologies and AR and VR, virtual reality, augmented reality, um, to really we're training more physicians all over the world, as well as frontline healthcare workers, on how our technology applies specifically in their healthcare systems, uh, not just in the developed markets and the big academic medical centers that, that you know we're used to talking about, mm-hmm. but in all corners of the world, in, in rural areas as well. Well, now you've got a, a tremendous couple of franchises, and they're detailing. You've got cardiovascular grew fifteen percent, medical surgery grew twenty five percent, neuroscience grew twenty six percent. Diabetes declined three percent. Right, Jeff. It's time. Come on, it's time that that number reverses itself. Well, look, I agree with you, and it couldn't happen faster, fast enough. You know, we've uh, about two years ago we've doubled down with our R and D investment. This is where we brought in some money from outside the company as well with Blackstone, and those products are working their way through the regulatory approval process. And uh, you know, we expect some approvals here shortly. Uh, I think last time I talked to you, our, our, we launched our new pump uh, right. and sensor in, in, in Europe, and the feedback, Jim, is phenomenal. Best time and range of any pump. Time and range meaning keeping the patients to the appropriate uh, gl- gl- blood sugar levels, and that will be here in the United States, uh, we anticipate, uh, soon, and, and that will get those numbers out. Launching our show, I know how many millions of people need that, okay? Millions. Now, you are doing some things I always have to ask about because no one else has done it and everyone's given up on it. Deep brain stim, which I always think is this is the cure. This is the way to get to Parkinson's. It's the way to get to a lot of nerve damage. It's the way to get to a lot of things people have given up on. It's also perceived to be impossible, Jeff. There's nobody thinks it can work except for Medtronic. What luck are you having? Well, we're having, I don't know if I'd call it luck, but it's been a lot of, a lot of work, a lot of investment. This gets back to the, the branding question you asked. It's engineering the extraordinary. And this is an example of how we're applying technology to some of the world's most difficult problems, right? Neurodegenerative diseases uh, are, are difficult, right, to, mm-hmm. to uh, diagnose and manage. And now through the, the use of a combination of technologies, miniaturization, computing power, sensing, we're able to uh, listen to signals in the brain that are causing these tremors, like, for example, in, in Parkinson's, and actually apply just the right amount of energy to mitigate those symptoms and personalize that therapy. And so this is, look, this is the result of 30 years of research, but in the last couple of years, we, we've really 
doubled down once we made a, a breakthrough in sensing and now are redefining the space. Uh, and, and I think, look, we're all going to learn a lot from this, the sensing technology we just launched, and it's going to help a lot of patients. Are your, are your sensing technologies, do they involve antenna outside the head? No, no, no. This is actually all inside, right? S- small electronics inside the body with, with high fidelity sensing, picking up very minute signals that your brain's sig- sending out. It, Jim, the signal to noise ratio is a million to one. I didn't know what that meant as a, as a lay person, so I asked our scientists to kind of right. quantify it for me. It's like if you and I were on a, a, of a tarmac of an airport, right, in LaGuardia, and, the seventh, and we were standing 100 yards apart, and the 737 was fully spooled up, and you whisper something, and I can hear it. That's oh, a million man. to one. And that's what we're doing all inside the body, and then listening and turning around and applying just the right amount of therapy to, to help that patient. That is so much better than even two years ago. That's an incredible, incredible leap. You guys are doing great things. I know you got to do the refresh. I like all Medtronic. And I thank you for sharing us. We didn't even get to the robots. That's next time. Okay, this is Jeff Martha, Chairman CEO of Medtronic, MDT, a wonderful company. Thank you so much for coming on the show, sir. Always good to see you. Thank you, Jim. Yeah, all right, you too. Everybody's back after the break. Coming up, a storm is coming. So give us a call. Kramer's got the answers to all your burning questions. The Lightning Round is next. It is time! And then the lighting round is over. Are you ready? Ski dance on the light round. Clear round is over. Mark in Florida. Mark. Hi, Jim. Uh, it's great to speak with you. Good to speak with you. Yeah. My, my question is about a stock showcase on Mad Money about two months ago when you spoke with the CEO. It shot up and has returned to earth in spite of recent analyst upgrades back down to about where I bought it. What's your outlook for Doximity? Doximity is it's such a great company, up very big today. Here's the problem with Doximity. That's the kind of stock that people have turned on. I talked about that at the top of the show. I think you hold Doximity for the long run. That's how you make money, Doximity. Let's go to Harish in Florida, Harish. Hey, Jim. Thank you very much for speaking with me. It truly is a pleasure. I have learned a lot listening to you all the way from the days of Kudlow and Kramer. Holy cow, you now you're getting a me. wonderful okay. teacher. You are a great teacher. Thank you. I learn That's something from you every time I speak to you. Thank you. My question to you is about Abbott Laboratories. You always teach us that it doesn't matter where the stock has come from. What matters is where it is going. So with that caveat, I'd like to know, does the current stock price truly reflect the possible earnings growth with the upcoming expected acceleration in the Binex home testing kits because fairly soon, most likely, we'll have an oral medication for COVID treatment. Well, Harish, that's been the reason why people have been shying away from uh, buying the stock, but they sure aren't shying away from buying Binex now. I mean, look, I think that this thing's going to be with us for a long time. Remember, they already pre-announced bad for Binex now. They're not pre-announcing good. But Abbott's got so many other things going for it. Let's not call it a Binex now story. I like Abbott, but I've liked it for multiple years and will continue to do so for the Charitable Trust and, of course, therefore, the CNBC Investing Club. Steven in New York. Steven. Jimbo, what's up? My dad, Ronnie, says hi. He's a big fan of your show, and you've made him a lot of money. Oh, my God. Jimmy Chill says thank you. 
Now, I love the cannabis industry. I think there's a lot of money in there, especially with federal legalization right around the corner. Yet they've just been doing beat, getting beat down over these past few months. My favorite of them is Tilray, ticker symbol T-O-O-Y. You know, look, I, I happen to like David. Look, Erwin Simon runs it. used to run Hain. I happen to like him very much. I don't like the cannabis industry except for the industrial real estate part, which is a re... The cannabis industry has just caused a lot of heartache. And between SPACs and cannabis, there are a lot of people who have left our stock market, and I don't want that to happen to you. Now I'm going to Robert in Texas. Robert. Booyah, Mr. Kramer. Booyah. Uh, I have a question about the long term of Upwork. Yeah, I mean, look, Upwork, it's like Indeed. I mean, these are like recruitment companies that are very important right now. They do it for a while. high white, high and white collar. Uh, people, its stock is at its high, but I think it can go higher. It's not a bad company. And that, ladies and gentlemen, the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. What do we want from negotiations with China? People keep telling me it's game over. The United States has no discipline. We can't beat them. They've already won. I think that's ridiculous. The whole Chinese real estate sector is looking like it's built on quicksand. The current collapse could pull down all sorts of companies, including many of the big state-owned banks. Now, I have no illusions. While the People's Republic of China is an authoritarian dictatorship, they've been running circles around us for decades. I I wouldn't want to live under the Chinese Communist Party, but they have done a remarkable job lifting hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. In many ways, until the recent crackdowns, they were better capitalism than we are. But this is indeed a, a heinous regime with grand geopolitical ambitions. So why the heck are we even negotiating with them, let alone trying to get a trade deal? First, despite President Xi's recent anti-business shakeup, it's bad news for the global economy if they go back to the Chairman Malier. We want China to be engaged and civil, not hostile on the verge of invading our allies. If we could get the Chinese government to play fair on trade, that'd be fantastic. If they refuse to play fair, we may need to disengage. But here's the thing. While China's treated many Western businesses very badly, practically looting their intellectual property, something they really, they sometimes really do play fair. I mean, think about this for a second. They've certainly been playing fair with Nike, Starbucks, and Apple. You could argue they've earned the favor of China's government, perhaps by putting so many people to work over there. Starbucks in particular spent years trying to do what's right in China, which means engaging an employee's whole family. It's worked for them. From personal experience, my dad used to do a ton of business with the Chinese mill. It treated him great. He loved working with the Chinese. I think there's clearly a code to be cracked here, but most of our companies can't seem to crack it. But let's take a step back for a moment. If we're going to have talk, uh, some real serious trade talks with China, as President Biden seems to favor, we need a simple set of ground rules. First, no talks if the Chinese keep trying to bully and intimidate Taiwan, our great ally. Enough with the fighter plane flyovers, forget the war games, drop the hostile rhetoric. We know the Chinese government wants Taiwan, but they should take their cue from the Rolling Stones because you can't always get what you want. Second, we need a big show of good faith from the Chinese. Ideally, China should approve Boeing 737 MAX and then order a ton of them. The Chinese certainly need planes. They're just hurting themselves by holding off. Now, you could argue that I'm just talking my book. That's because the Chapel Trust owns Boeing, something I feel very good about as it had a strong September, the eighth straight month with positive net orders. Not enough to solve other problems. The stock actually went down after the news came out today. But if jet fuel stays this expensive, the airlines will have no choice but to order many new fuel-efficient planes. And if China places some big orders, the stock would soar. No pun intended. 
What else would be a sign of good faith? Well, they should buy some farm equipment from Deere and Caterpillar, by the way. They use that for coal equipment, uh, for construction. Like Boeing, these companies are set up to create lots of jobs. Uh, so sending business their way is politically rewarding. Remember, they have big food chains all around them, big multiplier effect. Third, the Chinese government needs to let American companies do business over there and do business directly. No more of these forced joint ventures. Fourth, let's have some admission of bad cyber behavior. We know cybersecurity firm outfits like CrowdStrike, as we heard earlier, are always fending off hackers based in China. That's one of the reasons why I wanted George Kurtz on. Many of these, these hackers are backed by the government. Chinese government time to stand down, for heaven's sake. Finally, right now, China desperately needs coal and natural gas. Well, we got a ton of both. I am not a fan of coal because it's terrible for the environment. But we can put people to work mining it and transporting it. Even better, we've got natural gas galore with lots of new export terminals popping up. And it's a no-brainer for China to lock in those orders, fund our operations, and the construction of more trains, as they're called. That's what we need to see if these talks are going to be meaningful. But if the People's Republic plans to keep intimidating Taiwan with war games and flyovers while they hit us with cyber threats and intellectual property theft, then these negotiations, they are going nowhere. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise you I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. The news with Shepard Smith starts now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.